Welcome to the National Film Pod of Canada, the podcast with a different take on the movies. My name is George Kaplan. In this episode, we continue talking about the early days of Canadian movies, based on the book by Peter Morris. Chapter 6. Years of the Quota D.W. Griffith said, quote, You in Canada should not be dependent on either the United States or Great Britain. You should have your own films and exchange them with those of other countries. You can make them just as well in Toronto as in New York. Unquote. It's ironic that his speech in Canada should have coincided with statements by the Canadian government's official film spokesman. Ripek argued exactly the opposite. In order to understand how the quota system came into existence, we need to explain what happened in Hollywood in the 20s. By then, Canadian producers had one major problem showing their films in Canada. The film market in Canada was controlled by Americans. Because of Hollywood consolidation of the American film industry, independent film producers could not find a movie theater to show their movies in. In the early days of movies, before the consolidation, there were many film producers who were independent, not part of a studio, so they made movies for other independent movie theaters and those that were not part of a chain. Distributors came along later on, and many of them were also independents. So if you made a movie as an independent filmmaker, you had a choice to go to any independent movie theater and make a deal with them to show your movie. But Hollywood consolidation meant that film production, film distribution, and film exhibition, the movie theaters, were controlled by each individual studio. So let's say MGM controlled all of their production, distribution, and exhibition for all of their movies. And Universal Studios control theirs, and Fox theirs, and so on and so on. Previously, all of these stages were in the hands of a third party. So that studios, after making a movie, had to deal with independent distributors and exhibitors. And sometimes those people didn't want to show the studio's movies, or their fee was too much, etc. It wasn't always easy for the studios to get their way. So what to do? Well borrow some money from the banks, buy out the independent distributors and exhibitors so that you can control everything and end up making a bigger profit. This is typical of many young industries, not just film industries, but here the scenario is pretty much the same. Independent producers start off small, and after a few years of success and lots of money generated, ambition and greed grows. And then a consolidation process occurs where a few key players buy everything up, then get control of the whole industry, which leads to a monopoly. And that was the reason of the success of old Hollywood, a control by a few studios of all aspects of the film industry. 
but not just in the U.S., in Canada as well. For our purpose here, Adolf Zukor is the one responsible for shaping the movie industry in Canada through his control of Famous Players Canadian Corporation. And Zukor bought out a Canadian movie theater chain owned by someone called Nathan Nathanson and called it Famous Players, which actually still existed until recently in Canada, but it was sold years ago to a Cineplex Galaxy Corporation. In the late 20s, this chain controlled first-run movie theaters in all major Canadian cities. Here's a quote from Peter Morris, quote, Zucor's strategy was simple. With the aid of a massive loan from the Morgan Bank, he embarked on a process of acquiring theaters in cities across North America. And since he controlled a production company and distribution company, Films made by Zucor production companies would be released by Zucor distributors to Zucor theaters. And this vertical nexus of producer, distributor, exhibitor created a model on which the international success of Hollywood was based. We'll find out more about Adolf Zucor later on in my upcoming podcast on Old Hollywood. As a result of this monopoly, Uh, For the independent theater owners, uh, block booking and other protective techniques made it difficult to get the films they wanted at a price they could afford. And here, block booking is a way of putting together a bunch of movies in a kind of package that theater owners have to buy. They cannot buy rights to individual movies, just a block of them. And not all movies in that block are all that good. So if you want to show one movie which seems to you like a winner and will generate profits, you have to show the others and they might lose you money. But the point being is that the owners, theater owners, have no choice. And for the independent film producers, giving their film into a downtown theater for a first run was near impossible since they were, there was no independent theater owners left. So, as a result of all that, there was a virtual cessation of feature film production in Canada in the 30s. Canada was not the only one affected by the Hollywood consolidation. Europe was too, but European countries moved quickly to protect their domestic film industries. Canada did nothing. Britain grew alarmed at Hollywood's domination and introduced a quota system where an equal number of British films would be shown alongside Hollywood ones. And here I need to remind some listeners anyway that Canada was part or is still part of the British Commonwealth, and it was then anyway much more aligned with Britain than the U.S. So the other countries in the Commonwealth were like New Zealand and Australia and so on. The British quota system included movies made in the Empire in the Commonwealth, and this was beneficial for Canada since it was part of the Empire in the Commonwealth. Its movies could be shown in Britain, enabling a greater market for Canadian film producers. But the Canadian government did nothing to encourage Canadian film production, even though it had access to non US markets. In contrast, Australia took action to protect its film industry. 
The only comment from Ottawa was that of Ray Peck, the director of the Canadian Government Motion Picture Bureau, who said that, quote, to put a quota law against the U.S. in Great Britain would tend to place a bonus on inefficiency, unquote. He also mentions an argument, quote-unquote, that we have heard too often. If the British made good films, there would be no need of a quota, unquote. And that was often said of Canadian movies as well. In another way, like, quote, if only Canadians made movies that people want to see, all would be well. He might not, Peck might not have been the, the first one to think like that, but he wasn't the last. I need to emphasize this point here a bit more, uh, simply because what Peck said is something we still hear being said today, almost a hundred years later. So I'm going to quote from the author here again. Quote, this somewhat naive view overlooks the fact that the cinema is very much an industry and is subject to the same economic stresses as occur in other industries. Economically, it made good sense for Hollywood to buy up a distribution and exhibition interests in a foreign country and then ensure that its own production were exhibited. This may not necessarily have anything whatsoever to do with the quality of that country's production. Unquote. Exactly. This might seem to be a trivial thing for some people, the fact that movie production in Canada is controlled by another country, but it does have social and cultural significance, then and now. But back then, many people in Canada were disturbed over the predominant influence of Hollywood movies in Canada. And more than that, it was distressing to see the image of Canada which Hollywood showed. Canadian teachers in 1928 were incensed when shown an American educational film which depicted Canada as a land of snowdrifts, with the forest primeval still predominant. Its people were either trappers, lumberjacks, farmers, etc. Hollywood ignored Canadian political sensibilities. There had even been many Hollywood films set in the Canadian North where a cabin was shown flying a flag that was not Canadian. Many writers and even government officials voiced the opinion that Canada was, quote, cynically treated as a mere convenience by Hollywood, unquote. Canada for them was useful as a market for their films or as a source of stories or locales, and now in the present as a cheap source of labor. There were many other examples. Many writers in the 20s urged the establishment of a Canadian feature film industry by government assistance, if need be. There seemed to be some sympathy for this approach at one time, but no action was taken. As we have seen before, Peck was big on the idea of a branch plant movie industry, inviting American producers to come over here and use Canadian resources in their films. He had spent some time in Hollywood, and as far as I'm concerned, he had drunk the Hollywood Kool-Aid. He was a Hollywood fanboy and could not see any other way of making movies than the Hollywood way, so that this attitude affected everything in Canadian film at that time. And that's actually my opinion here. He thought that British movies were shoddy at best and was against their quota system. But his vision of branch plants in Canada came true, temporarily anyway, although he didn't live to see it. Back to the quota system. 
Eventually, the British Kura system was implemented in England, but Hollywood found a way around it. Their way of doing it was to finance a Canadian film company, import British-born Hollywood actors and technicians to satisfy the quota, produce a feature film as cheaply and quickly as possible, and ship it off to London for showing. And notice here that they didn't even bother to use Canadian actors or technicians. These films were so bad that in England, the American-owned theaters ran the quota quickies in the early morning while the theaters were empty of anyone except the cleaning staff. Quota quickies were produced in Britain itself, of course. They were awful also, but at least they were made by British companies, so it provided some benefit for the local industry. But of course, only Canada allowed itself to be exploited without protest by Hollywood for the production of quarter quickies. Canada got almost no benefit, except for the injection of a little money into the cities where the films were shot. That sounds a bit familiar. Peck's branch plant dream lasted from 1928 to 1938. In these years, 22 feature films were made for the British market. And when the British changed their quarter laws in 1938, it excluded Dominion Productions, mainly because of what Canada had done. The Canadian companies involved in the quickies closed shop and disappeared. The Canadian feature film industry collapsed. Here's another quote from Peter Morris, quote, None of the Kodak films produced during that decade can be considered Canadian in any cultural sense. As a classic example of a branch plant economy and Canadian short-sightedness, the production of quarter quickies is sadly typical. There are all of the traditional arguments Peck used to favor the development. Hollywood has the technical know-how and the capital, and it provides jobs for local workers. But what Peck did not see was that in terms of developing a domestic continuing industry, the effort counted for nothing. Once the reasons for the Americans having branch plant production no longer existed, they removed themselves, their capital, and their technical know-how. And Canada was left with nothing. Unquote. But still, during this period, a few real independent filmmakers managed to make movies that are remembered to this day. Three of them stand out, according to Peter Morris. Filmmaker Robert Flaherty made Anuk of the North, a documentary-type film about the Inuit. Robert Flaherty is famous in film history for making this film and others, which has now become a classic. And though he was born in Michigan, uh, Flaherty spent much of his early life in Canada. He started out as an explorer and prospector, and in his travels he had discovered the Inuit during his expeditions to the Arctic. He had brought along a camera to document his trip, and that is where the idea for the film took place. His method of filmmaking was not typical of the standard documentary of the times. The full collaboration of the Inuit was the key to his method. He was not an objective, distant observer. It was to be a film not only about the Inuit, but also a film by them. For his main character, Flaherty chose Nanook, a celebrated hunter in the district. Morris quote here, Flaherty was not concerned with documenting facts, but in revealing and dramatizing 
a way of life. He was intent on authenticity of result. Unquote. The movie was released in 1922, and of course there were difficulties in showing it to people. Another quote here, the Hollywood production distribution exhibition combines were rapidly standardizing film productions and films had to fit into what the corporation executives felt audiences wanted. Unquote. But when finally showed, it was a great success and actually made a profit for the investors. Uh, the next movie was called The Silent Enemy, and this was made with the same methods as Nanook of the North. This film was about the Ojibwe people and of their life before the white man came. It too involved a dramatization acted out by the people themselves. The maker of the film, Douglas Burden, was a Harvard graduate, explorer, and ethnologist. He made the film while still in his 20s. He was a trustee of the American Museum of Natural History with a special interest in the customs and way of life of the Ojibwe. The Silent Enemy is set in the early 15th century. It tells the story of a small band of Ojibwe's who have enjoyed six years of plenty, but now face famine. The Silent Enemy. The filmmaker had a deal with Paramount, but the studio didn't know how to handle a movie that didn't fit its definition of a movie. The movie had another problem, in that it was made in the last days of silent pictures, when sound was being introduced into movie theaters, and this didn't help. It was a great critical success, but a financial disaster. And the last standout movie was called The Viking, made by Louis Freisel a graduate of Yale University. He was an outdoorsman who had explored the interior of Labrador. He was also a fan of Flaherty. The Viking is a dramatized feature film about the seal hunt in Newfoundland. It was unusual in that it used actual location sound during filming, a rare thing in, at the time since sound had only been introduced recently. Unfortunately, the filmmaker died while on an expedition to get more footage for the film. But the film was well-received when it was shown. Freisel had a distribution deal with Paramount, and again there was interference. Paramount insisted on inserting a melodramatic story in between the location shots, which did not improve this film. Everyone that saw the film hated those parts and preferred the real nature footage again showing that Hollywood execs had no interest in these films. Everything had to fit into their narrow view of what a movie was. And these three films don't redeem the quarter quickies, as far as I'm concerned, but they do show that good things can be done despite the difficulties of movie making in Canada. And even though these films were of a higher quality than others made in the same period, they do deal with the typical Canadian settings, the Arctic, the North, hunting, fishing, cold in the winter, etc. These films are not about the modern urban life that Canadians were living in the south of the country. All in all, according to Morris, the 30s were a gloomy period for Canadian film production. Chapter 7. Supporting Programs Besides feature films, other types of film were being made in parallel. 
Industrial films, documentaries, and travelogues were also being made. Uh, industrial films were like film commercials for a corporation before the days of TV. It was a very profitable film area in those days for companies that uh, made them. Those things are not too glamorous, and they don't get much attention from the average movie public. But they do provide uh, training and, f and jobs for film crews back then who, who can then use those skills in features. And since every film industry needs a pool of trained technicians, so that's how you would get experience working on those films. And most uh, Western countries also have these formats. But what was unusual for Canada was that after the collapse of the feature film industry, as seen in the last chapter, they became the only area of domestic film production. According to the author, and I quote here, quote, it is a depressing picture and one that was not to be relieved for some three decades, unquote. One of the companies that made such films was Associated Screen News, or ASN. It was up to a point, the longest surviving film production agency in Canada. It was run by Ben Norrish, who had founded the federal government's film bureau in Ottawa. In 1920, he was persuaded by Edward Beatty, the president of the CPR, Canadian Pacific Railroad, to leave the bureau and set up ASN. As you may recall, in the early days of film in Canada, the CPR had long been active in film production and saw this side of the movie business as another source of profit for them. Established in 1920 in Montreal with the CPR as a majority shareholder, ASN had a quarter of a million dollars invested in it. It started with the staff of two in 1920, to rise to over 100 people in 1930. By the end of that decade, it had risen to be a dominant force in Canadian film, more significant than the Canadian government's Motion Picture Bureau. It produced a wide range of films, from theatrical shorts to sponsored industrial films and newsreels. ASN did depart from travelogues and documentaries because of one of its new employees, Gordon Sparling. He convinced the ASN to make theatrical short films. He convinced ASN to make theatrical short films. Sparling was a Canadian, educated at the University of Toronto. He had worked in the Ontario Motion Picture Bureau and the federal government's Motion Picture Bureau. Didn't like it much, so he went to New York to learn the film business. And then he returned to Canada to make a movie for ASN and was then invited by Ben Norrish to head ASN's new production department. Sparling accepted the offer under the condition that he be allowed to make short films in addition to sponsored films. So for ASN, a new series of films came about called Canadian Cameos. It was to be Canada's only continuing creative film effort in the 30s. Morris quotes here, through international theatrical release, almost a full measure of Canada's image was seen through ASN's films, unquote. Of note, they were Canada's first shorts in sound and color. The series lasted until 1953. Eighty-five films were made, most of which were directed by Sparling himself. Canadian cameos were short films about the different aspects of Canadian life. They were diverse 
There were sports films, historical films, and city portraits. One of these city portraits was about Montreal, made in the style of city symphonies that some cinephiles might remember, a style popular at that time. The name of that film? Rhapsody in Two Languages. It depicted Montreal from sunrise to sunrise. It had a rapid cross-cutting style, positive and negative images, and optical effects that built to a climax. Very imaginative in style, it is surprising that Sparling never again applied that style to his other films. Morris here, quote, Perhaps the most important thing about the Canadian cameo series is that the films were actually shown extensively in Canadian theatres and in British, American, European, Australian, and Far East theatres, They represented in the 30s almost the only reflection to Canadian film audiences of their own cultural efforts. However, despite the continued success of the Canadian cameo films, Norrish, the head of ASN, resisted all pressure to go further and undertake feature film production. Why? Because Ben Norrish shared the same view as Ray Peck of the Canadian Government Motion Picture Bureau in that feature film production was best left to the Americans. This was the general attitude among Canadians with some film expertise, at least in the 30s, and a lot of things could be said about the, this attitude. One is that it hasn't really changed that much in all these years, and it's shared by a lot of people even today. It's good to remember that sometimes when people feel that some things cannot be done, it's not always because of lack of resources or talent, but because of their very own personal belief. If someone thinks that something cannot be done, they won't spend any time trying to do it since they already believe in the impossibility of doing it. These attitudes and beliefs are what prevents things from happening, in this case, a Canadian feature film industry. Of course, there is an irony here in that Norrish succeeded in operating a successful film production company for many years in Canada and he provided Canadians with a theatrical short film series that was seen at home and worldwide, ensuring that Canadians saw something of themselves on their own screens. In this, for the 30s anyway, he stands alone. There were other Canadian companies that sprung up to challenge the barrenness of the Canadian film scene. There was Crawley Films in Ottawa and the Vancouver Motion Picture Company. But the really big change came when the National Film Board of Canada came into existence, replacing the Motion Picture Bureau of Canada. The NFB, still in operation today, has had a long and varied history and made its mark not only in Canadian films, but internationally as well. I will get into the history of the NFB in a later podcast. And that's the end of this episode. I should mention that if you're interested in seeing the ASN's series called Canadian Cameos, including the cameo called Rhapsody in Two Languages by Gordon Sparling, you can view them on a YouTube channel called Library and Archives Canada. Just do a search on that name, Library and Archives Canada, in YouTube, or look up the title Rhapsody in Two Languages you'll find it easily. 
Next podcast, we conclude our series on the early history of Canadian film. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can reach the NFP at nfpcan at protonmail.com. That's nfpcan at protonmail.com. Bye for now. 